You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are holy. You are set apart and you are altogether majestic and righteous. And we are but created beings. And so we honor you for who you are. And we are grateful that you, in your mercy and in your kindness, reach to us. That you speak to us through your word, that you have come near to us in Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son. That you've given us your spirit, triune, and holy God. We confess you indeed are holy and worthy and deserving of all praise and honor and glory. As we come to your word this morning, would it strengthen and encourage us? Would you chain my tongue that you, Holy Spirit of God, would would communicate to your people here this morning what you would have for us, not merely what we think you have for us. Speak to us through your word. Illuminate our minds to understand and our hearts to receive for our good and for your great glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. You can have a seat. Good morning. We are glad that you're with us today. Uh, when, we, when we gather for worship, when we gather in community to, during the week to care for one another, to encourage one another, to build one another up, when we scatter into all the places we live and we work, we believe that God is the one at work in us and through us to advance His kingdom. So we're glad we're together today. Yes, to be encouraged. And while we're here for this short window of time, to be equipped as God's people on mission. This fall, we are studying the Old Testament book of Exodus together. So you can grab your Bibles if you have them and turn to Exodus chapter 3. If you need a Bible, uh, some folks will be coming around and would love to put a Bible in your hands. If you do not own a Bible, uh, please take this one with you. You can take it home. Um, Exodus chapter 3 is where we're going to be. You can find your way there. The overall theme for our study in Exodus is, I am your God. That phrase comes out over and over again in Exodus. And we've laid out kind of three questions we can ask uh, every week as we come to the text, or as you're reading ahead, um, week in and week out, the text we're going to be in, asking these kind of three questions. One, what is this text telling me about who God is? Two, what is this telling me about what it means to be God's people? And three, where do we see in this text the shape of redemption or the picture of God's purpose in His work in redeeming and saving His people? So that's kind of the, the overarching, bringing everyone up to speed if you're joining us for the first time. Good morning and welcome. If you've been with us, 
These are kind of the overarching questions I want us to ask as we open up Exodus. What is this telling me about who God is? What is this telling me about what it means to be God's people? And three, where do we see God's redemption or the picture, the shape of God's redemption, even all the way back here in Exodus? Today we're going to look at chapters three and four together. We're kind of taking it in larger sections. So if we had a title for today's sermon, it would be this. I am your God, which is where the God... Uh, makes himself known multiple times throughout Exodus. I am your God who helps your unbelief. That's part of what I hope we hear in Exodus 3 and 4 today, is God saying, hi, I'm here, I'm your God who helps your unbelief. Because I think unbelief is a core of most of our hang-ups as people. We don't believe God is who he says he is. We don't believe God will do what he says he'll do. We don't believe that we are who God says we now are in Christ Jesus. I mean, we, we want to believe. I want to believe. But functionally, we often don't. If I were to ask you this morning, before we open our text, if I were to ask you, what is one thing about yourself that you really don't like? Or let me say it another way. If you could change something about yourself, what would it be? Now, I'm not asking you to raise your hands and tell the room. That'd be a little awkward. But, but think about it for something for a second. What is something about yourself that you'd like to change? Maybe it's something about the way you look. You'd like to be taller or thinner or have better hair. Or like me, growing up, you'd like it that your left ear doesn't stick out farther than your right ear. Now, all of you are going to be focused on that for the rest of the time, <laughs> right? I've passed that genetics, those genetics on to my children, you poor kids. Not all of you have sticky out of ears, but some of you do. You know who you are, <laughs> Right? Maybe it's not something about the way you look. Maybe it's just something about the way you function, right? Your eyes don't work like they, they should, or your ears don't work like they should. Your hearing is not what it used to be, or your joints are sore and you have this kind of chronic pain. It just doesn't function the way that you like. If you could change that about yourself, you probably would, right? But maybe it's not even that. Maybe it's not external. Maybe it's not even physical. It's, it's something else. Maybe you'd just like to be a more organized person, or maybe you'd like to be a little quicker with the joke. Maybe you'd like to be a more outgoing. I think it's fair to say, no matter how comfortable we feel and how secure we feel in our own skin, we can probably all identify something about ourselves that we just really don't like. And some of it's reasonable. It's not all bad, right? We, 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 we want to grow as people. We want to be good stewards of our bodies and of our lives, not only for outward appearance, but as an act of faithful obedience. I mean, God only gives us this one life. I only have this one body. So out of reverence for Christ, we want to steward it well. It's not all negative. But often our dissatisfaction with how we currently are, I think gets in the way of what God might be saying to us about what He wants to accomplish in us and through us. We believe in theory God can use us, but under the surface we doubt it. Today, I think we'll see uh, Moses, right? One of, the, one of the, the pinnacles of the faith in all of the Old Testament. Moses, of all people. I think we're going to see Moses called by God to rescue God's people. We're going to see him overflow with unbelief. It just kind of spills out of him. And Moses, like me, and probably you, looks at himself and goes, God, you cannot be serious. I am terribly flawed. Surely you made a mistake. And Moses isn't totally wrong. 
We'll find out as we look at Moses' life a little here in Exodus, and then as, we, as you continue to read through the Old Testament, Moses is terribly flawed, and so are you, and so am I. We are broken and imperfect people, asking, well, who, who am I? Who am I that God would use me, let alone who am I that God would love me? But God doesn't really let us ask that question in this text this morning. Instead, we are asking, who is this I am that God reveals himself to be? Because God, in his sovereign grace, has chosen to use imperfect people to accomplish his perfect will. There's one thing I want us to take from this text this morning. It's this, that we are fatally flawed and imperfect people. But God, in his sovereign grace, has chosen to use imperfect people to accomplish his perfect will. That's the big takeaway this morning. So we're not going to read, be able to read all of Exodus 3 and 4, but we're going to read a few key passages from Exodus 3 and 4 to kind of anchor us to the larger section. Exodus 3, 1 through 6, Exodus 3, verses 10 through 15, and Exodus 4, 27 to 31. So let's look at our text today. You can read along in your Bibles. Some of it will be on the screen as well. Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 will be the first thing we'll read. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Skip down to verse 10. This is the Lord continuing to speak. He says, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Verse 13, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Move down to chapter 4, verses 27 through 31, the end of the chapter. The Lord said to Aaron, we'll meet him in a minute, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel 
Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. This is God's holy word that does not and cannot fail. As I said, we are fatally flawed and imperfect people, but God, in His sovereign grace, has chosen to use imperfect people to accomplish His perfect will. What I hope we see that kind of from this text that illuminates that pretty remarkable truth, if you think about it, are these three things. That God is the one who calls us, that God has a counter for all of our excuses, and that God is covenantally faithful. Let me say that again. God calls, God counters our excuses, and God is covenantally faithful. Let's look at the first, first one. It's God who calls. Now, by the time we get to Exodus chapter 3, Moses has already fled Egypt for his life and is essentially self-exiled in the wilderness. He finds a family who takes him in, he gets married, he settles down, and for 40 years lives in relative obscurity. Moses is not pursuing some specialized training in how to lead large groups of people. He isn't honing his combat skills, maybe for off, uh, fighting off the occasional wolf from sheep, but other than that, not. Moses is also not studying to get his degree in advanced geopolitical negotiation which is what God is going to ask him to do in about five minutes. He's tending sheep in the wilderness. To be a shepherd was not a highly sought-after profession. It was pretty low. And Moses seems perfectly content to live out his days hanging out with sheep. Sure, it's hard work. I've been told that, that taking care of sheep isn't particularly easy all the time. But Moses is okay with that. Relatively stress-free living with sheep in the wilderness. And Exodus 3 says that Moses is out tending sheep around Mount Horeb, and in verse 2, the angel of the Lord appears to him in a flame of fire in the midst of a bush. And he looks, and behold, the bush was burning, but it was not consumed. And Moses says, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Now, I love this inner dialogue of Moses. (laughs) Remember, he's likely alone tending sheep, and he says to himself, I need to go see this which, as silly as it might seem, actually humanizes Moses a little bit for me. I'm not the only one who talks out loud to himself when I see something interesting. Moses does that too. All right, great. Verse 4, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called out to him from the bush. So God accomplished what he set out to do in getting Moses' attention. And he says, Moses, Moses. So so let's, let's talk about just briefly what's happening here. Most biblical scholars refer to any interaction between God and man like this, which we see in the Old Testament. Here's the big $10 word, a theophany. A theophany is just a a physical appearance of the invisible God that is kind of revealed in, particularly in the scriptures in the Old Testament. And what's important here is this is more than just a message from a messenger. This, This voice isn't speaking for God. It is the voice of God that is speaking. And that's important, specifically because we see the name Lord in our English translations, the name Yahweh, which we'll get to here, God's personal name, is here. 
And many scholars all the way back to the early church fathers consider these kind of Old Testament theophanies, these um, intrusions into creation by the invisible God, are actually instances of the second person of the triune Godhead, Christ Jesus, speaking and interacting with humanity, humanity pre-incarnate, before he puts on human flesh. Now, the important part here of this is not that little theological component. It's this, that God is the one who is speaking directly to Moses. The bush is covered in fire, and yet the wood isn't burned. The leaves aren't crispy. Everything's still intact, yet it is on fire. And out of this fire, a voice calls his name, Moses, Moses. And Moses says, here I am. The Lord speaks from the fire and tells him this, take, off your, sand, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. I don't know about you, if I saw a burning shrubbery and it started talking, I'd probably listen too. I, you probably would, or run away, or pull out your phone and start like Snapchatting that thing, like, what is happening? That's probably actually what we would do, <laughs> right? But Moses says, okay, clearly something's happening here. And fire is often used as a biblical picture. We see it all over the, the scriptures for holiness and purification. Moses had likely taken the sheep around this place many times. So what was happening now that it was holy and he needed to take off his sandals that he didn't have to just five minutes ago? See, God everywhere often tends to set things apart for specific use. People, places, and objects. So what's happening here when he says, take off your sandals for where you are standing is holy. The ground now is holy. I kind of liken it to, to this. The President of the United States flies in a big 747 called Air Force One. It's a phenomenal piece of technological achievement. They've gutted and transformed a big commercial airliner to be a mobile miniature White House with like defensive capabilities and all kinds of cool stuff. And so when the president flies in it, it is Air Force One. But did you know that if president showed up and he hops on a plane up here at Fargo Jet Center, which, you know, because he just hangs out there, I'm sure, if he got on a Cessna, a two-seater Cessna, and takes off into the air, do you know the call sign that the pilot would then use to call the tower? Air Force One. Wherever the president is, if he's in a plane, it is Air Force One. That's a little bit of a picture here of where God shows up in real time. He immediately purifies that place and says, Moses, you better take off your sandals because while you think this is just sand, it ain't just sand. I'm here and I'm speaking to you. God says, I've, I've heard the cry of my people. I've seen their distress. And in verse 8, he says, I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land they're in to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The picture there is one of, of just overwhelming prosperity and peace. And Moses is probably thinking, we don't know, but he's probably thinking, you know, that's, that's really good, God. You should probably do that because I've seen what's happening in Egypt and it's not great. And then in verse 10, God says this, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And we're going to get to that in a second. But God reveals himself to Moses, and then God reveals his plan. He says, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and I have a plan to fulfill all the things that I've promised to rescue my people, and I'm sending 
you. So from top to bottom of this whole thing, God is in control of what's happening. This is not Moses' idea. Clearly, we'll see in a second. This is God's, and it has been God's idea all along. So remember, God is the one who establishes the relationship with Moses. It's an extension of his love and covenantal relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God says, I am calling you. I'm talking to you so that I can accomplish my purposes and fulfill all the things that I've said I would do. So maybe this seems a little overly simplistic. But I think this idea of God being the center is a little foreign to our modern way of thinking. We are almost hardwired now to carve our own path, to to make our own way, to make our own plans. But do we stop and ask, okay, God, who formed the universe, as Cameron read, do you have something maybe to say about the way my life should be ordered? about what maybe you want to do, about what maybe you're already doing and you just want us to to join you in that? That's the first thing. God is the one who calls. Put a pin in that. God is the one who calls. The second thing is this, that God counters all of our excuses, right? Exodus 3, 1 through 10 is God revealing himself. He says, I've heard the cry of my people. And Moses is like, great. I've come. I have a plan to rescue them. Moses is like, cool. I will bring them out to this prosperous land. And Moses is like, yes, do that, God. And I'm going to send you. Moses is like, not so good. (laughs) Immediately, Exodus 3.11 through 4.17 is a masterclass in excuse making. It's absolutely fascinating. And there are five kind of excuses. Some are questions. Some are just direct statements that Moses makes to God. And I want to look at them because I think they mirror the sorts of things that we offer as excuses to God too. Verse 11, Moses says to God, but who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? So that's the first excuse. Who am I? Moses says. I'm not the one you're looking for, God. Now maybe I used to have some authority in Egypt, but I'm a shepherd now. I don't have the ability or the authority. I don't have the reputation. Nobody's going to listen to me especially not Pharaoh. He's the king of one of the most powerful nations on the earth at that time. Why would he listen to me? The Egyptians don't like me. Heck, the Hebrew people don't like me, Moses is saying. Nobody has any reason to listen to me. And this is God's first counter. Look at verse 12. He says, but I will be with you. (laughs) I can't do this, God. I'm a nobody. And God says, it doesn't really matter what you think you are. I am who I am, and I will be with you. Think about that. So everything Moses brings to the table changes. Everything changes. Moses' lack of credibility, his lack of authority, his lack of influence is now all bound up in God's authority, in God's credibility, in God's influence. And you'd think that verse 12 would be enough, right? God, I can't do this. And God says, it's okay, Moses, I'll be with you. Like we want that to be a sufficient answer. And yet Moses continues. First, he says, you've got the wrong guy. Who am I? Second, even though God says, I'll be with you, he goes, okay, great, you're with me. But what am I supposed to say? Who should I tell them sent me? See, Moses realizes he needs proof of some kind, of 
Pastor and author Tony Morita says it this way, obviously, only saying, I heard a voice in a bush, would not be sufficient. Partly this is Moses being wise, right? Like, hey, a burning bush told me I'm supposed to talk to you. Like, who's listening to that guy? So, so Moses isn't totally wrong, but he's not showing a lot of trust in the Lord here. And so God says, here's what you tell them. Tell them my name. Tell them that I am sent you. And this is where we see the, the personal name of God. It's not the first time we've seen it in the Old Testament. Definitely not the last. The name Yahweh. It's the name that God has revealed to his people. It means the God who is. See, God is reminding Moses and through Moses, all the people, that God is central. Not Egypt, not Pharaoh, not even Israel. The most important thing about God's mission is God. That's what he's saying. And I, God's saying, will be with you. Verse 16, he says, Gather the elders and tell them that the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me. First, tell them my name. Second, tell them my word. Tell them what I'm telling you. And this is prophetic language here. This is one of the first instances we see of Moses essentially being trained by God to be a prophet of God. You tell the people what I'm telling you. In this case, the message is for the elders of Israel, and God promises to Moses, they will believe you. Hang on to that one. We're going to need it. God promises Moses, they will listen to you. Because it's you? No. You're just a shepherd. That's cool. You can have that view of yourself. They will listen to you, God says, because I'm the one speaking. I'm giving you my word to them. I don't have the word, says Moses, and God says, it's okay. They're not your words. They're mine. And my words never fail. God's word always accomplishes the purpose for which it is sent. And we'll see in the coming chapters that so much of what God says here to Moses starts to be fulfilled in verses uh, in 20 through 22, starts to be fulfilled as God's people are rescued from Egypt. As they leave, they do plunder the Egyptians for gold and all kinds of things. The question is, do we trust God's name? Do we trust God's word is true and good and sure? It seems to be Moses' question. Still not enough? Moses moves on from asking questions to just making statements and arguing with God. That's what he's doing. Excuse three, but they will not believe me. Did God just say they will believe you? But they won't believe me. We, we can get mad at Moses, but we have to look inwardly at that. We'll do that in a second. He just said it. Now, people need proof, God. It can't just be words. So why would they believe me? Essentially what Moses seems to be asking. Why? And God, in his kindness, gives Moses three outward, like, miraculous signs to show God's power. Here's what he tells him. Your staff will turn into a snake. You'll lay it on the ground or throw it on the ground. It'll turn into a snake. Grab it by the tail, which is, by the way, how you don't pick up snakes. Grab it by the tail and stand it back up, and it will become a staff again. He says, if you take your hand, your normally healthy arm, hand, and stick it inside your cloak and pull it out, it will come out leprous. Skin disease, ash, ashy, dry, diseased skin. And if you put it back in and pull it back out, it'll be whole again. And third, Moses takes some water from the Nile, pour it out on dry ground, and it will become blood as it hits the ground. Now, these are all foreshadowing the plagues that would later come. We'll 
talk about that when we get there. But part of what's happening here is Moses needs to be reminded that it's not up to him to convince anyone or convert anybody. He needs to be faithful to bring the message and let God be God. Because it's wholly God's power at work to change someone's heart anyway. Moses can't convince the people to believe him. He has to trust that God will actually change people's hearts. Interestingly, if you have faith in Jesus, you have been given a sign a display of God's power. If you have faith in Jesus this morning, you have been the recipient of something extraordinarily miraculous. Go with me for just a second. I want to take this rabbit trail. There is nothing natural about faith. Nothing natural about faith. We were shown a sign, a bloody cross and an empty tomb. And God the Holy Spirit has done a miracle in us if you believe in Jesus. I don't care if you grew up in a Christian home and believed in Jesus from a young age or if last week you recognized that you have shipwrecked your life and you fell face down and said, Jesus, save me, I'm a mess. Last week. The miracle is the same. God makes those who are spiritually dead alive. You want proof? Well, there used to be a dead guy and now he's alive. That in fact, you used to be dead, you used to be blind, and yet you're not dead and you can see. Moses needed to learn, we need to learn that God is the one who does the work. And he calls us to be faithful and just deliver the message. That's the third excuse. Verse 10, here's number four. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent. I can't talk good. Now whether this was physiological, we don't know. Did Moses have a stutter or a stammer or some other kind of impediment? We don't know. We don't know if it was psychological. Maybe Moses suffered from what's known today as glossophobia, which is just a fear of public speaking. Half of you in the room are like, I have that. <laughs> right? We don't know. All we know is that Moses was convinced that this was not something he was comfortable doing or good at. And I love God's counter to this excuse. Look at verse 11. God says to Moses, sorry, I, missed, I lost my spot here for a second. I'm looking in chapter 3. Chapter 4. I'm not eloquent. Verse 11. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who, who made your mouth, Moses? Who gives someone the ability to speak or not speak, or to hear or not hear, or to see or not see? Isn't not I, Yahweh? What's fascinating is because I think we believe, like I think Moses believed, that maybe God did not know about his weakness. Maybe you're not... In the know, God, but I don't speak very well. Maybe you made a mistake, is what Moses is kind of saying. You think God doesn't know about our weaknesses? You think God is surprised by our shortcomings and our fears? Verse 12, he says, who made your mouth? Doesn't even really answer his question and just says this in verse 12. Now go. You go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. God is reiterating what he told him way back at his first excuse. I already told you, Moses, I will be with you. I'll be with you. And it's not even really an excuse. It's just kind of Moses' desperate statement, which is kind of the fifth excuse. He says, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. I know you said you're going to be with me, but can you just please 
choose another. God has been gracious over and over again. I'll be with you. I've told you my name. I've given you my plan. I'll give you powerful signs as proof. I'll teach you what to say. I will be with you. And Moses says, not good enough. Not good enough. And, and it might seem humble, but there's a vein of pride here underneath these excuses, I think. Because I think Moses is only seeing what's happening through the lens of himself. I mean, think about it. Every excuse that Moses offers centers around Moses. What he can or cannot do, what he's comfortable with, his own history, his own experiences, how that might affect his future actions. And God is essentially telling Moses, this is not about you. It's about me, God says. God is making his name known and carrying out his plan. It's not about you. And if I can be so bold this morning, this afternoon, I believe we collectively as Christians here at this place in time could benefit from receiving this gentle rebuke that Moses received. That none of this is actually about you. And I've wrestled this week with this reality. I mean, at first as I was reading through this, I could get kind of hard on Moses. Like, God said he'd be with you, Moses. That should be enough. Right? And then I read that, and then I go, yeah, but, but do I live as if God being with me is enough? The more I've sat with and meditated on this passage, the more I ask that question, and I want us to ask that question, is God enough? Do I live as if God being with me is sufficient? In the midst of what seems like a whirlwind of craziness sometimes, is God being with me enough? In the midst of really hard circumstances or suffering that we're going through, is God being with me enough? And when a situation seems just crazy and I feel like I've got no wisdom, at least nothing beneficial or helpful to add, do I trust that what God has given in His Word and that His presence with me is enough? I think it's a question we need to ask. Do I walk with humility and with confidence in God so that I can walk in the way He's called me to walk? I confess, for, for far too much of my life, and even often in ministry as a pastor, I'm confronted and held up by fear. Because we get more concerned, and I get more concerned of, well, what will this do to me, right? And maybe you feel that way about your life, too. And sometimes it's just immaturity and ignorance, right? We need to grow and mature. There's things we don't know, and then we experience them, and then we grow, Hallelujah, God is gracious to help us grow. Sometimes we just need to grow. And sometimes we need to confront the sinful and selfish pride. We need to repent of that. Moses says, please, Lord, send someone else. Look at verse 14. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. You know what it is to kindle a fire? It's to make it hot to make it burn hotter. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, verse 14. God gets mad. God gets righteously angry at Moses. I think in part because God being with Moses should be enough, right? So God, out of anyone, has the right to be frustrated with Moses. And yet, even with righteous and justifiable anger, God is kind 
He's gracious to Moses. God says, you have a brother in Egypt, Aaron. Aaron remained in Egypt from the tribe of Levi. He was a priest. He's a good public speaker. I'm going to send Aaron to be your partner in this, to support you. I know you feel like you can't speak, Moses. So you tell him and let him speak to the people on your behalf. Even in our failings, God is often gracious to provide for us in our weakness. As Nancy read from our scripture reading earlier in Psalm 103, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. So, so for me, I'm, I'm learning to walk in humble confidence in the calling of God, trusting that he is with me and that his word is sufficient. What does that look like for you? God calls He counters all our excuses. And the third and final point this morning is that God is covenantally faithful. And I didn't just use covenantally faithful because it's another alliterated word that starts with C, although it is helpful. But there's all kinds of covenantal language here. Remember, God says, this is who I am, Moses. I am the God of your father. I'm the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. This is covenant language. God has promised that his people will prosper, that they'll have a place, a home, that he will be their people and, or excuse me, they will be his people and he will be their God forever. So verse 18 tells us of chapter four, Moses talks to his father-in-law, takes his family and starts his journey back to Egypt. Now, if you've read ahead, you may have noticed verse 24, which stands out to be a little odd. If you haven't read ahead, here's the oddity of verse 24. It's important to, to reference. In verse 24, In verse 25, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. That's Moses. God, it seems, is ready to put Moses to death. And the reason he's willing to do that is because Moses' firstborn son was not circumcised. Moses has been separated from God's people for 40 years. And circumcision was the sign of the covenant between God and Abraham way back in Genesis 17. What Exodus 4 tells us is that Zephora acts with faith in God, circumcises their son, and essentially saves Moses' life. And it shows Moses and us that we are only right with God through blood and through God's covenant promises. And so this might seem like a really bizarre add-on to the story, but I think it's important because it's referencing God's covenant faithfulness. We too are rescued through blood, not the blood of circumcision, not the blood of bulls and goats that would later happen in the temple by sacrifice. All those previous covenant signs were given to point to Jesus, the final covenant sign. We are rescued through blood, specifically through the blood of Jesus. He bled so that we don't have to bleed. This is covenantal love and faithfulness. And we're seeing it on display right here in the life of Moses and his children. And then here's where our section closes. Uh, Moses and Aaron tell the elders of Israel what God has told them. They show them the signs God has given them. Verse 31. And the people believed. Back in Exodus 3.18, God said, They will listen to your voice. They They will believe, Moses. God promised and God provided. God is proving to Moses, see, I'm faithful. In this simple way of, I told you they would listen, and look at their listening. I'm faithful. 
So when we say God is faithful, we mean God will always do what he said he will do. Verse 31 continues, it doesn't stop there. The people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Worship is the proper response to seeing God's faithfulness. And this pattern that we see in Exodus 3 and 4 is something we can apply. Remember, we asked the question, what does this tell me about God? What does this tell me about what it means to be God's people? And where do we see the shape of redemption? Here's where we see the shape of redemption. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that we are called. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God calls to us in Christ Jesus. Two, God counters all our excuses. Later in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Like Moses, we can say, you've got the wrong one. I'm the wrong guy. I'm a mess. And look at verse 11. Because without Jesus, we're right. We are a mess. Look at verse 11 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. As such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God covers us and washes us with the blood of Jesus and counters all of our excuses. And three, God is covenantally faithful. At the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul concludes his letter to the church like this. He says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and when the mortal puts on immortality. This is Paul looking forward to the future promise in glory when Christ returns and brings to full completion everything he promised. He says this, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, because he gives us the victory, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. God is proving that he is covenantally faithful all the way to the end. And so we might read this and read through this Old Testament lesson and go, okay, great. Why, though? Like, why would God be faithful to me? Why would he love me? Why would he use me? Theologian and author A.W. Tozer says, God needs no one, but when faith is present, he works through anyone. To which I say, amen. <laughs> Why does God use us? Because he gets the glory. Right? God gets the glory. And before you think, man, that's a little arrogant of God, you know, to take all the glory. Arrogance is undeserved. God is the only one deserving. We are small, and yet he chooses to call, empower, and use us. What a privilege that God who created the universe cares about you and cares about me and not just cares, loves us, and not just loves us, but acts for our good. So in all that God has called us to, let's ask, what are our excuses? And what has God already told us about himself? What has he already told us about his provision for us? What are our excuses that keep us from walking by faith, from walking in God's power to live as he's called us to live? I believe, help my unbelief. The God who made us, the God who loves us, who sent his son to die for us, 
who was raised and ascended to the heavens, who will never leave us and never forsake us. I believe that. Help my unbelief. Not only that, the God who has given us His own Spirit to dwell within us, who will complete His perfect will in and through us all the way to the end. I believe. Help my unbelief. It's okay for us to confess that we are fatally flawed and imperfect people. But God, in His sovereign grace, has chosen to use imperfect people to accomplish His perfect will. And for that we say, Amen. And Amen. Let's pray. Father, we confess we, we so often know our own frame, that we are dust. And you are other and holy. And yet in your mercy, you have reached to us. Most powerfully, you reach to us in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son. Who at the right time died for the ungodly. We thank you. As much as we don't understand, we thank you that in your kindness and in your mercy, you use imperfect and flawed people to accomplish your perfect and flawless will. Would you align our hearts with yours as we surrender our will to yours? Would you meet us with comfort as we face confusion and grief? Would you meet us with encouragement when we are unsure or when we feel like we're standing on unsteady ground? Would you remind us of the sure and full hope, the one thing we know we can anchor to? Even as we come to the table, that in the elements of bread and the cup, would fasten us, would hold us tight to the promise that in Christ Jesus we are held, that we are made new, that we are given hope. Encourage your people as we come to the table this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.